Good morning. Caleb isn't here. <clears throat> I appreciate your prayers this morning. Um, I do still feel a little foggy-minded. Um, thankful that my fever broke last evening and things seem to be headed in the right direction. It seemed fitting to pick up Ephesians 3 after the school program last Sunday evening. Um, it's been slow going getting through Ephesians, but as I was thinking this week and um, I thought I had a, a different track that I would be taking for this morning, but I kept kept coming back, kept thinking about um, Sunday night, and yes, the, the students shared about countries of the world, but they, they kept bringing up being a missionary, and maybe they weren't using that word very much, but that idea kept, kept popping up. Um, and... The, the title I have for the message this morning is A Christ-Centered Missionary. We're going to look at the first 13 verses of Ephesians 3, and, and we'll just note what Paul says about being a missionary and what Paul does as a missionary. So let's start. I'm going to read Ephesians 3, the first 13 verses. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it is not as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart in my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Have you ever been interrupted in prayer? Many things can cause this. Babies crying, children hollering, microwaves dinging, phones buzzing, somebody knocking on the door. Or sometimes a wandering mind just goes elsewhere. I can start to pray and suddenly remember something that I need to do or get lost thinking about this or that. And before I know it, I've 
chased a rabbit down a trail for several minutes. Um, staying focused in prayer sometimes can be a challenge. And if you read this whole chapter, we're, for the sake of time, we're not, it appears that, um, well, 2 through 13, um, in verse 1, Paul seems to, to start an intercessory prayer for the church, and then he goes down a holy rabbit trail um, and, and doesn't pick up the actual prayer again until verse 14. And and some there's a part of me that wonders if, if some of his digression here is prompted as he reflects on uh, his position, as he says in verse 1, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Um, keep in mind when I say a digression, uh, even though even though it looks like a digression here where he starts out to start with an intercessory prayer and then spends a dozen verses um, unable to contain himself from just talking about God for a while. Um, it's more than just a digression. This passage is part of God's word. It's inspired. Um, it contains many of the, the themes that we see over and over again in the, in the book of Ephesians. Paul speaks of his sufferings. Um, he talks about bringing of the Gentiles into the people of God. He talks about the nature of the church. Uh, he proclaims the riches of Christ again and uh, talks about the believer's access to God. And with, yes, these are key themes of, of the book of Ephesians, but, but we find a lot of personal application in these, in these uh, 13 verses. Paul's life serves as an example to believers. Like the Ephesian church, we are also called to love the church and to fulfill her mission of making Christ known to everyone. Um, we, of course, should acknowledge um, and appreciate Paul's special role in, in history and in the um, in redemption and, and the story of the gospel, but we can't distance ourselves from his mission. I'm not saying we all hold exactly the same role as Paul, but we can't just step back and say, well, Paul was different. There's a lot here that applies to us also. Um, God gave Paul the ministry of proclaiming Christ and explaining the unfolding uh, plan of, of God to people, and we as believers have that same purpose. And so if, if we accept that this passage applies to our lives, then, then it starts to really um, take shape as a as a missionary text. Um, there's a pretty much parallel passage in Colossians 1, verses 24 through 29, um, that also contains a lot of missionary language. In Ephesians 3 and Colossians 1, we read of Gentiles or, or the nations, um, of suffering for the sake of mission, um, uh, administration, I guess, of, of grace given, the revelation of the mystery or the plan of God, uh, the proclamation of Christ. We see all of that in these verses in, in Colossians 3 and then also in the verses um, in, I mean, in Ephesians 3 and also in Colossians 1. And as I read this, it, it just feels like it's it's overflowing with, with Paul's passion and desire for the nations to worship Christ, the reigning king. In uh, Spurgeon, 
in a sermon titled, A Sermon and a Reminiscence, said this, Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ, or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. That can hit pretty hard when I take stock of my life and how much I actually use my tongue to speak of Jesus. And of course, not everyone will serve the nations in the same way. Every Christian, though, should assume the, the position or, or the posture of a missionary and testify to the grace and work of Jesus Christ. So, in light of all this, uh, with this missionary passage here in front of us, I want to look at six uh, ideas, six attributes, uh, six marks of a, of a Christ-centered missionary. Um, looking here at this, this section of verses that uh, Paul took time out of his prayer life to get down for us. And um, frankly, for me, it's hard not to think of the Apostle Paul as the greatest of all missionaries in some ways. When I think of spreading the gospel around the globe and and the, the role that that God allowed and, and ordained Paul with, um, we have a really good example to look at as we think of what a Christ-centered missionary does. So the, the six points that, that I want to highlight from, from these verses are a Christ-centered missionary follows the will of Christ, a Christ-centered missionary understands the message of Christ, a Christ-centered missionary is overwhelmed by the grace of Christ, a Christ-centered missionary proclaims the unsearchable riches of Christ, a Christ-centered missionary has a high view of the church of Christ. And a Christ-centered missionary draws near to God through Christ. So, starting with a Christ-centered missionary follows the will of Christ. Looking primarily at verse 1 of this chapter and verse 13, Paul, he, he kind of has um, bookends here. He, he opens and closes this passage by speaking of his current condition and the sufferings that go along with that. He says he's a prisoner in verse 1, and he talks about the tribulations or afflictions he's suffering in verse 13. Paul's imprisonment shows the nature of a Christian missionary. Jesus called Paul to a special ministry, and that ministry involves suffering. Paul, Paul was told by Christ from the beginning um, that that his that his uh, his life his service for Christ would involve suffering, and Paul was willing to suffer on behalf of Christ for the sake of the mission. Acts nine fifteen and sixteen. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Speaking of Paul, and then. Paul in Colossians 1 verse 24 said, Now I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. I rejoice in my sufferings for you. He was, he was not happy to suffer, but he was more than happy to uh, 
to pay suffering for the result of being able to, to labor for Christ. So we don't go looking for suffering, but we shouldn't be surprised by it. 2 Timothy 3.12 Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 1 Peter 5.8-10 Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world, but may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, established, strengthen, and settle you. And the uh, Apostle John, in his normal, straightforward way, in 1 John 3.13 says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. It comes with the territory. Being a missionary for Christ, it just, part of that life includes suffering. Baseball players shouldn't be surprised if they occasionally get hit by a baseball. Soldiers shouldn't be surprised if the enemy occasionally shoots at them. The missionary for Christ should not be surprised if we face some suffering in life. It's just part of the environment that we are in. We go looking simply to obey the will of God, and yet we understand that following God's plan might involve suffering, just as he told us. Uh, Jesus in John 15, verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So here we have Paul. He's um, a prisoner. It's, it's interesting to me that Paul in verse 1 doesn't refer to himself as a prisoner of Caesar or a prisoner of Rome, but he says a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And so Paul had an acknowledgement, had a, had a realization in his life that while he was in a Roman prison or, or under Roman imprisonment, um, he was, he was still seated right in the middle of, of God's will. Um, and of course, that could get very messy if we start talking about, well, was it really the will of God for Paul to be suffering and, and all of that? We know that Paul was doing what God wanted him to, and we know that Paul was a prisoner, and we can be satisfied to, to move forward with that realization. Um, Paul didn't see his imprisonment as, as thwarting the mission of God, the mission of Christ in his life. Um, they could chain Paul, but not the message. In Ephesians 6, verse 20, uh, Paul says, For which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And then in 2 Timothy 2, 9, he says, I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. So Paul wasn't... Um, tossing and turning on his uh, on his bed at night, wondering, have I somehow messed up that I'm, I'm stuck here in prison? Um, he just kept on trusting God and working for God. The most important thing to Paul wasn't safety, security, or retirement plan, but simply the mission of the king. He knew he wasn't imprisoned because of some uh, moral failure on his part or that he had displeased God in some way. 
Um, instead, he he was committed to God, um, and he knew that that came with sacrifice. He was committed to the will of Christ, and so he was chained um, either to uh, possibly to a Roman soldier, possibly in in chained to a, some sort of wall or whatever. But he was he was in. He was in chains, writing this letter, imprisoned. But most important to Paul was the glory of the true king. And so he says he was Christ's prisoner. He was bound to Christ, and and any other um, bondage that he faced was, I don't know that uh, it's quite right to say immaterial, but awfully close to immaterial. Um, To him, the important thing that he was bound was that he was bound to Christ. So he calls himself Christ's prisoner, Are you Christ's prisoner? Am I Christ's prisoner? Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Do you say to the king, send me anywhere as long as you go with me? I'm yours. Use me. Are we an Isaiah or are we a Jonah? Of course... We try to exercise wisdom when we take the gospel into hostile places, but we can't, we can't shrink back in fear. God is sovereign. The true king rules over all. And we go with, we go in his presence. We go with his power. Um, Elsewhere, Paul writes, imitate me as I also imitate Christ um, in, in first Corinthians 11. So, we can follow, we can follow Paul down down the road of of Calvary, of, of sacrifice, knowing that the King and His mission are worth any sacrifice. And verse thirteen, I, I find interesting. Paul, we we see we see a uh, the the loving heart of Paul here, um, a heart that that a. It's the kind of heart that I want to have as a pastor. He's the one in prison, yet he it, it looks like he wants to, to put everybody's mind at ease. He's the one that's that's in bonds, and he's telling uh, his the, the readers of the letter, the people who are hearing it read, they, they shouldn't be greatly discouraged by his situation. He reminds them of the big picture. He doesn't want the church to be downcast. He wants them to see that his suffering is, is just a small part in God's big plan um, in Colossians 1 in verse 24. Um, we, we read earlier where he, he said he rejoiced in his sufferings for you. Um, he, well, I'll read it again. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking the affliction of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. He, he was more than happy to, to have um, personal suffering be what he had to pay in order to be able to contribute and, and push the, the will of God, uh, well, push the, 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 the word of God and the, the gospel forward. And, and so in this, I just, I just see a picture of, of Paul's staggering care for people. Um, and, and he's, he's pointing people to the glory of God that will be revealed instead of having them get bogged down. Um, 
suffering will give way to glory. And because of this, believers who hold fast, we have hope, even in the midst of, of great suffering. Don't ever forget that and, and remind others that the best is yet to come. The, the king in all his glory will arrive and this, uh, well, in in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul refers to it as our, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, uh, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Um, our momentary light affliction will seem like nothing in the light of that eternal weight of glory. The next point, a Christ-centered missionary understands the message of Christ. So looking primarily here at verses 2 through 6, a Christ-centered missionary understands the message of Christ. Paul starts to talk about responsibility, the responsibility he has to communicate the message of Christ, and he he shows his desire for the church to understand this message. It should seem pretty obvious that missionaries are called not only to go, but they are to go with the right message. Uh, many false religions have missionaries. What makes Christian missions distinct is the message about the crucified, risen, reigning, returning king. We have to make sure as missionaries that we are not proclaiming a, a deficient or a substandard gospel. I read a book a while back in which the author was dismayed at the, the perverted gospel he kept running into and how the, the prosperity gospel had really taken root in impoverished nations he visited. Um, it was very easy for someone to sell a message of, you won't be living in squalor if you follow God. Um, it's a lot easier to sell that message than God wants you to give everything up and you're going to face some momentary light affliction, but the weight of glory on the other side of it is well worth it. Paul, Paul has a, a, a special role in, in the history of the gospel. He, he's given um, insight about the mystery of Christ in verse 4. Um, he's, he's God's steward. He, he uses that term of being God's steward in 1 Corinthians a couple times, in chapter 4 and chapter 9. Uh, he also uses it over in Colossians. Um, as God's steward, Paul's responsibility involves explaining God's intent to, to create a special people, a, a household um, of both Jews and Gentiles through Christ. We also saw that back in chapter 2 when we were studying there. But here we have um, verses 5 and 6. We have this, this household um, made up of Jews and Gentiles. And Paul has this role to explain this mystery. Um, and the church's role is to understand um, and communicate it here in, in verse 4. It was not some mystery of, of esoteric knowledge reserved for the secret few. This, this mystery, this message about uh, Christ is for all nations. And you'll find that when you read in the New Testament mystery, it's not used in the way we're used to thinking of it. It's not the boxcar children mystery books um, where you're wondering the whole time what has happened, uh, what's going on, um, trying to figure it out. It's it's not a secret to be hidden, but it is a truth to be um, to be revealed and, and shared. 
And this, this mystery that Paul talks about, this message about Christ is for all nations. Paul urges the Ephesians to forsake all the other pseudo-mysteries and focus their attention on Christ, the truth of Christ. This mystery was was hidden. It was, it was not made known to the people in other generations, it says in verse 5. But now, at this point in history, it can be understood. That's the point here. He's not... He's not telling us there's this great mystery, but I can't tell you about it. He's saying there was this mis- this mystery that for, for generations was not made known, but now it can be understood. And while the plan of God was, was present in the Old Testament, parts were unclear or, or hidden in a sense. And we, we see that in um, verse 9 kind of talks about that. The, from the beginning of ages, it has been hidden in God, who created all things. Um, it's it's always been there, but it it wasn't as clear until uh, the revelation we have through through Christ. And Paul was ready to shout it from everywhere he could shout it from. When when Christ came, when when Christ came, it's it's like the lights came on. Um, the the, the death and resurrection of, of the Messiah um, brought to light the truth of God's plan and the fact that to, to, to even come to an, the Old Testament uh, understanding or expectation of salvation for a Gentile, you'd have to be proselytized. You'd have to become a Jew. Um, Paul, Paul is showing how that with the death and resurrection and work of Christ, um, we have one household made up of all people. Jews and Gentiles have equal access to God. And, and he points out that there's uh, a degree of nearness to God that we have in the New Covenant that, that wasn't there in the Old Covenant. Now these things have been made known. And people should know them and celebrate them. And so we didn't reveal um, the message as Paul did, uh, verse 5, but we, we can re-reveal. Um, we can we have the opportunity to teach the doctrine that, that Paul shared, the teaching that Paul shared, we get to reteach to people who don't know about it. But that implies a certain amount of study on our part, a certain amount of work. Um, not work uh, work's not work's not even quite study to show thyself approved. Be diligent. Um, it's, it shows a diligence on our part and a, and a digging in. Not every missionary has to be some tremendous theologian, um, but every missionary needs a firm grasp of the gospel. We, if we go out with just a, a half-truth, we're going to spread a half-truth. We, we need to, it needs to be real to us. It needs to be something that we've dug into, and it's it's... We're trying to get the fullness of it as much as we can. Um, and so, frankly, that's one reason why, um, you know, somebody becomes a Christian, we don't, six weeks later, send them off to Peru to be the missionaries down there. Um, it's, if if you're a new Christian, keep exploring the, the glories of Christ and understanding um the gospel more and more study and dig into the the teachings the the great doctrines of faith look at 
creation, the fall, redemption, and, and what it means to be a new creation. Um, think about, meditate on on the death and, and resurrection of Jesus and the, the, the centrality of the church. Um, a Christ-centered missionary understands and, and delights in the message of Christ. And we, we have to make... How was it I read it? We have to make the main thing the plain thing um, when when we're missionaries for Christ. We have to make the main thing the plain thing. Our goal in going overseas or going into New York City or D.C. or going over to our neighbor's house is not to make them be like us. It's to make... It's, it's to help them be like Jesus. And so um, don't... Don't get sidetracked into. Um, don't get sidetracked away from. It's about Jesus Christ. It can be pretty easy for some of the structure around uh, how we live as Christians to be maybe earlier in the conversation than it needs to be, and and we need to always keep coming back to this is about complete and utter surrender to Jesus. This is about giving up the entirety of yourself to Jesus. As we think about what Paul said, we're, we're reminded of the faithfulness of Christians who have, who have understood and, and they've preserved and passed on the gospel for generations. In 2 Timothy 2, um, Paul gave a picture of that when he said in verse 2, and the things that you heard from me, speaking to Timothy, the things that you heard from me um, among many witnesses, commit those to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There, there is a cascading effect of the gospel going from generation to generation. Paul was writing from prison, likely um, from some of the things I was reading, it seems like it was probably fairly likely that you would actually be chained to a guard in, in that kind of a prison situation. Um, doesn't really matter. Paul was chained in a, in a prison. He was, he was a prisoner in chains, and about 2,000 years later, we can know and worship Christ around the world. Here in this country, we can do it without fear of chains. And we have the, the writings that God inspired Paul to write while he was there in those chains. We need to really appreciate the value of, of the gospel message and, and making it known in the world. Sometimes it can just become a little bit of, well, that's how our life is. We're Christians. And, and maybe some of the shine can almost, it, it sounds crazy to say it, but I think sometimes the shine can kind of start to, to wear off of the gospel for us because, well, it's just life, right? A Christ-centered missionary is overwhelmed by the grace of Christ. I've, I've been amazed as I've read through Ephesians how Paul just, he just can't keep quiet about grace. Uh, he just... He just can't stop talking about it. Um, in verses 7 and the first part of verse 8, um, remember from our, our earlier studies in Ephesians, Paul Paul just can't stop talking about grace. And, and think about how Paul experienced God's grace. Here he was, he was, talk about a blasphemer. Um, he refers to himself here as the worst of sinners. And, and so think about the picture then he has of the grace of God and getting him 
knocked down, turned around, and pointed in the right direction, and working great things in God's kingdom. Can you imagine? I don't think I can quite grasp the the joy that Paul must have have felt. I mean, almost the, that, that that tingly kind of excitement that God was using him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Here he was, the one who was who was you know, full throttle working against Jesus early on because he thought he was following God. And can you imagine just the excitement that someone of Paul's attitude and, and, and makeup would have had about the fact that God was using him to, to share with, with the world that, that salvation was available to all. And, and I, just, I just think that sometimes I wonder if Paul had trouble sleeping, not because he he uh not because not for the reasons I do but but because he just oh he just couldn't couldn't get himself wound down from the fact that look at how look at the opportunity he had and and the excitement he had for God took him who was who was in his words the worst of the worst and is using him for God can i get a little bit of that excitement in my life that God is using me for him, that he has, he's given me the opportunity to share the gospel. In 1 Timothy 1, verses 14 and 15, Paul says, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul was just overwhelmed with the grace of God that could take the blasphemous persecutor of the church and use him as a as a part of spreading God's word and expanding the church. And he talks in 1 Corinthians 15 and Galatians 1 about um, how God's empower how God's grace empowered him for ministry. For the sake of time, we won't read that, but 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, um, he, he talks about the grace of God being what empowers him and, and is able to move him forward um, in ministry. God's grace also had a humbling effect on Paul. Um, it had a humbling effect and an empowering effect. So we see here in Ephesians, faithful missionaries, they love grace. God's love for grace teaches us a couple lessons about grace. One, God's grace should humble us. Um, Paul understood God's grace. He lived in a, in a, because of that, he lived in a profound sense of, of just humble gratitude to God. He knew that apart from God's grace, he would not be doing what he was doing. So he says a couple times here, verses 7 and 8, that grace was given to him. Um, he, he deflects attention away from himself and back toward the proper place for praise to go. He, he points attention back to God, the God of all grace, as he says. And Paul refers to himself as the least of all, saint, all saints. Um, that's a, a term he's used in, in a couple of his writings. The least of all saints. It doesn't seem to be a false humility, um, uh, putting himself down so that others poke him and say, oh, no, you're not. He, he really seems to believe that he in his self was the lowest of the low. Um, and so his position and place in, in the history of the gospel and, and how God was, 
was spreading his church didn't puff him up at all. It just left him pointing back to Christ over and over again of look at what the grace of God has been able to accomplish. He feels privileged to be able to serve the king of all creation. Do you feel privileged to be able to serve the king of all creation or do you feel simply obligated to serve the king of all creation? I get the sense that Paul was just, he could hardly believe his good fortune that he was allowed to serve the king. We shouldn't have, no, we do not have to serve Jesus. We get to serve Jesus. Um, Paul refers to himself as a, a humble, um, he uses the term a servant of the gospel. He does that also in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 11, and Philippians 1. I think he also does, I almost think he did in chapter 1 of this book also. Even though he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, inspired by God, he knows that he is following in the steps of, well, think about Jesus. He was a servant who washed his disciples' feet. He suffered. Paul knew whose footsteps he was walking in, and that's the invitation he gives in 1 Corinthians when he says, follow me the way I follow Christ. He's saying, I'm stepping, I'm trying to step in Jesus' footsteps. Come along behind me and do the same. And he, he sees the, the, the servant the, the servant at um, the heart of, of how Jesus walked on this earth. When you view yourself as, um, I don't know, I don't know that we, I'm going to get myself in trouble. I haven't thought through that one enough to make a definitive statement. Paul uses the term the least of all saints. If we can start to grasp our lowliness, then we will gladly serve those that Jesus, back in Matthew 25, referred to as the least of these. Jesus talked about serving the least of these. Um, if I can get the proper view, the proper perspective of myself as lowly, then I will be glad to serve the least of these. If I think of myself as someone, if I think of myself as someone of position, I'm up on a podium, I've got... I've got rank um, or even if it's just I've got salvation and I start to get puffed up about that I'm not in a position where I'm going to be willing to serve the grungy, the dirty the one wallowing in the mud because I won't want to get dirty but if I, if I have the proper lowly servant's viewpoint of myself then I will be happy to serve those that Jesus called the least Grace should humble us and cause us to identify with everyone, including the poor and the weak. No one is beneath us because we realize that any good thing we have is only by the grace of God. No one is beneath me because no one is unable to be touched by the grace of God. And so when I have that proper lowly servant heart and servant mindset. Paul, Paul didn't have, since Paul saw himself as the least of all saints, it was natural for him to give love, time, and energy to everyone who he could. Um, 
and, and try to draw them closer to God, whatever their, their place was. We need the grace of God to be, to be worked down deep into our hearts as we see it is here in Paul's. Um, and, and how do we get that? How do we get that identity? How do we see ourselves as the lowly servants um, willing to, to, to work for God no matter where he calls us to do it? It takes long and deep meditation on God, on his grace, on, on the sinfulness of humanity, of, of the cross and our, our, our risen Savior and Master, and through regular repentance and, and realization when I mess up to repent and come back to God and, and see myself for who I am and see him for who he is and be used by him. And another thing here, we should realize that we need God's grace to empower us. Um, in verse 7, Paul pretty much directly ties grace and power together. Um, think about the power at work when, when God called Paul on the Damascus Road and um, that, that, that was a powerful experience. And, and the, God's power is what continued to sustain Paul for ministry. For the sake of time, we won't read it, but um, Romans 1 and 12 and 15, Paul talks about God's power and, and the grace of God being what empowers him um, in 1 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 12 and Colossians 1. Those are just some of the, the examples I found where Paul points directly to the grace of God as what empowered him to work. By the time Paul wrote this letter, he had an abundant experience of God's uh, powerful hand um, in his life and ministry in spite of difficult circumstances, including sickness. Um, the, the mighty power of God provides sufficient strength for the weak, fragile, ordinary people as they make the glories of God known. Uh, you can go back to Ephesians 1 for that, verses 19 and 20. We can't ever lose the awe of grace or the joy of proclaiming Christ. Um, in John 1, the description of, of Jesus there is full of grace and truth. A Christ-centered missionary proclaims the immeasurable riches of Christ. So we have this unsearchable uh, word here. The idea is immeasurable, unsearchable. Uh, Paul tells the, the purpose of, of God's uh, grace. Here he uses... Um, oh, I'm, I'm realizing my notes are a lot longer than my time here this morning. In, in the second part of verse 8, we have, we have Paul proclaiming Christ. Um, God empowered Paul to proclaim the, the unsearchable or the incalculable, the un, incomprehensible riches of Christ. Um, this particular word, you're not going to find it anywhere else in, um, other than biblical Greek, from what I can understand. Um, when when Paul thought about the glory of Christ, he made up a word. Um, he, from, from what I read, this word is built on the word for footprint, um, uh, a word for footprint that was used in Greek literature for a tracker, 
someone who pursues another by following footprints, um, the idea of tracing out or searching. Um, and, and Paul uses some of that of you, you just can't even track, you can't even follow, you can't even get your head around the, the riches of Christ. Um, other biblical writers uh, talk about the, the immeasurable or not calc- incalculable nature of God. Um, Job, especially a couple times, speaks of the unsearchable ways of God. Paul uses um, this, this unsearchable idea, um, the unsearchable wisdom of God, and uh, his untraceable ways, I think is how it is in Romans somewhere. Consider how Paul, this, this former persecutor of Christ, is now he's, he's, he's consumed with proclaiming the crucified Christ. Um, 1 Corinthians 2, uh, verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling, and in my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Jesus transformed Paul's life and Christ and his redemption became Paul's, just the resounding theme of his life. To the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 28, Paul says, we proclaim him. Um, Paul's all-consuming subject of proclamation was a person. It was Christ. Is Christ the all-consuming subject of your proclaiming or of your teaching? Is Christ the all-consuming subject of my preaching? Um, yeah, maybe someone would say that proclaiming Christ every week will get old. Well, based on Ephesians 3.8, we can't agree with that. Um, if my preaching is boring, it's not because Christ is boring. His glories are immeasurable. They're, they're unsearchable. As long as we are proclaiming Christ, we are never out of things to talk about. We are never, we should never talk about him without a certain amount of passion. Um, proclaim the riches of Christ to your to yourself daily. That's one of the things we do in our in our quiet time with God every day is we're, we're reminding or proclaiming to ourselves again the riches of Christ. And and from that can flow out from from our communion with him, from there we can we can then have flowing out. Um, and, and declare his glory to others. The, the goal of our proclaiming him, whether it's in informal evangelism, formal evangelism, public speaking or preaching or teaching, it's not to attract personal praise, it's to praise, bring praise for the master. Um, I'd, rather, I'd rather a sermon inspire the thought of what a great God than what a good sermon. So the thing that must always be central in in being a Christian missionary is the Christ of Christian missions. Um, People have a lot of heroes. Um, There's one hero that stands tall above all the others, Jesus Christ. Jesus changes lives. Jesus changes everything. 
and, and keep, the, keep the life changer, keep Jesus Christ at the heart of your proclaiming. Paul talks about shedding light in verse 9. Um, Paul, Paul has the responsibility of helping those who receive the message of salvation to understand God's truth. Earlier, he prayed for illumination back in, in chapter 1, uh, verse 18, and he uses that same word to describe the role he has in illuminating God's plan to, to converts. Um, what's the plan? Go back to verses 2 through 6, chapter 3. The Jew and the Gentile are one in Christ, the household of Christ. And Paul is commissioned to explain this, this glorious truth, this glorious reality. Go back to chapter 2, uh, verses 11 through 22. Paul emphasizes the sovereignty of God in all this, referring to him as the God who created all things. This plan isn't an afterthought. It's part of the sovereign Lord's eternal purposes. Um, as we look over these verses, we're struck by the centrality of Christ and the global nature of, of Christianity. Both are, are revealed here. If someone asks you, where did you get your passion for missions, a proper response is from the Bible. Um, through and through, there is there is a missions thrust in the Bible because there is a, a uh, messianic thrust in the Bible. The Bible is, is all about Messiah. Um, and from that is... You can't help but say the whole thing is about missions. We have we have a, a um, we have a God who is over all, and we proclaim the only King, um, the King above all. Um, a Christ-centered missionary has a high view of the Church of Christ. So verses ten and eleven. If you have a high view of Christ, you need to have a high view of the Church. Ephesians contains a lofty view of the church. We saw it in the end of chapter 2. Um, and then in this next passage, um, in verse 21 of chapter 3, Paul prays for God to be glorified in the church. In uh, chapter 4, the first part, he discusses the unity of the church. He, he goes on to explain how God has gifted the uh, people with spiritual leaders to equip them for ministry in the second part of chapter 4. In chapter 5, he talks about how Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Here in verses 10 and 11 of Ephesians 3, um, Paul brings out the point um, to, to our theology, our understanding of the church. The Apostle Paul tells us that the church has implications that reach throughout heaven and the entire spiritual realm. This is something that I, I can't get my head around. Um, the church made up of Jews and Gentiles is making known the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. It seems that the angels look on at the grace and, and marvel, while the demonic forces would look on in fear and tremble. Um, the evil forces have already been defeated at the cross. They're, they're awaiting, I guess, their, their final ending. The existence of the church is announcing that, that their rule is coming to an end once and for all. There, there's more going on with the church than meets the eye. If you're a part of the church, then you're a part of, of a cosmic sermon that's being preached um, to, to spiritual rulers and authorities. Um, now, 
Obviously, the, the emphasis of this passage is not on us preaching to unseen powers and principalities. Um, the, the point we're supposed to be running with is that we preach to people. Um, but the point is, in, in, what God, in what Paul's saying about here in, in these verses, um, God is revealing his plan to the powers through the existence of the church. God points to the church. In the spiritual realms, God points to the church and saying, my power at work, right there. And Christ is at the center of all that. Um, Ephesians 1.10, all things are summed up in him. Um, just, we don't have time to dig into it, but just think about what these verses say about how um, the, the church is a witness to the glory of Christ. We make known the manifold or the multifaceted wisdom of God. Um, this wisdom is so great that God uses it to proclaim to the heavenly beings. His, his grace and his glory are displayed through the church, united in Christ. Um, uh, Colossians 1, 17 through 22, uh, you, can, you can read about that, where Paul, again, talks about the, the, the unity of the church in Christ is, is speaking into the spiritual realm also. And I wonder about those Ephesians who, who gathered around, the, the letter got there from Paul, and, and so you know, they're all gathering in as close as they can to hear the person who's reading it out for them and to hear that their togetherness, their unity as the body of Christ, um, all these, I mean, these, these are normal people. Um, farmers, carpenters, shopkeepers, servants, young and old, these people gathering around to hear the, 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 the letter that Paul wrote for them. And, and they hear, you know, from, they're, they're normal people. And they hear, they get to what we have as chapter three. They didn't have chapters. They just listened until it was done. Um, I won't make you do that. Um, they, they, they hear this and they're told they're testifying to the human to, to the heavenly beings, these normal people. This fellow who was sweeping sweeping the, the sh floor of his little shop earlier, he's, he's part of testifying to the heavenly beings, the, the power and glory of God. Don't underestimate the glory of God in the church. Christ-centered missionaries have a high view of the church. The church is central to human history. Christ loves his bride and, and his missionaries understand that God's redeemed people proclaim the, the unsearchable, the incalculable riches of Christ to the nations. And they marvel then at how God's people make known to the rulers and authorities in the heavens God's manifold wisdom. And then the, the last point here quickly, a Christ-centered missionary draws near to God through Christ. This is in verse 12. Christ-centered missionary draws near to God through Christ. Part of the mystery is that believers can experience a nearness to God that, that just far exceeds that of the old covenant. Christians can boldly approach God because of Christ. We don't have... Think of, think of the fear that the priest would have had going in to the Holy of Holies under the old covenant. And, and the, the, the trepidation there... And then think of all the layers back 
and, and how people approached, were able to approach God. Our approach to God, well, in, in chapter 2, verse 18, Paul says it's, it's through Christ we have both access. We, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. We don't come to God with some arrogant boldness, but, but we have a, a freedom of access um, through Jesus. We come freely and openly without constraint. We don't, it's, it's an immediate relationship. There, there's no mediators that have to, you know, I talk to the priest who talks to God or I talk to the priest who might have to bump it up to a cardinal or a whatever and, you know, on up the line. I have direct access and immediate relationship with God through Christ. Christ-centered missionaries take advantage of, of the, the miracle, the privilege we have of prayer. They live in prayer. They love prayer. They make the gospel known in prayer. If you're a Christian, you can pray anytime, anywhere. We can draw near to the throne of grace and find help when we have a need. We'll close by reading a few, uh, Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, starting at verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. That's a double negative. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses and was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We seek God in prayer through Christ by the Spirit. We can know that he hears us. He's for us. He's with us. A Christ-centered missionary is never alone. Then Paul, of course, returns to what seems like his initial thought, intercessory prayer, starting in verse 14, and he asks God to empower the church. That is what we as, as Christ's ambassadors need. We need God's power to sustain us for the mission. May God deepen in us the greater love for Christ, for the grace of God, for the church, and for the mission he's given us. Can we have a song, please? <laughs>